Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When the disciples turn to Jesus to explain the parable of the wheat and the tares, they make the terrible mistake of reducing the Lord's teaching to the parable of the tares of the field, omitting any reference to the wheat in verse 36. This omission betrays their misplaced focus. The parable is all about wheat production, but the disciples remain preoccupied with the tares, ignoring the imperative of the parable. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 36 to 43. All of us at the Bible as Literature podcast wish you a very happy Thanksgiving shared with family and friends. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 306 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard, you and I had an interesting conversation earlier this week about the versatility of the word seed. There's often confusion because when we talk about seed in, for example, Genesis, it could refer to Abraham's faith his trust in the instruction. In this sense, God provides the seed that provides life. But it could also refer to Abraham's descendants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is technically what we call in literary studies metonymy, where you can have the seed be the actual seed, or by metonymy, it is a representation of the entire plant. So you have the seed of Abraham, which is the faith, or the seed of Abraham, which is those who follow Abraham's faith. It's both a representation of the thing, but also that thing can be a part of a bigger whole. This sometimes seems a little bit like a slippery metaphor, that it's kind of slipping from one image to a next, but there is a reason they're connected. To the extent that the seed is the gospel teaching, I mean, the teaching doesn't die. The teaching is the source of life. But when we are sown as a seed in God's field, we die. We fall to the ground and die. And if our death bears witness to the teaching in which Abraham placed his trust, then our death falls to the ground and, in the Gospel of John, can produce life as a martyria. It's important to understand this as we go into this morning's discussion in verse 36 about the Lord's explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Sometimes we talk about the soil as the community because the soil is the context in which the gospel is sown. But in this passage, you'll see this shift where the people who are sown in the field are the seed. 
to be honest, when you conform to the biblical seed, you cease to have an identity. I was having a conversation about the New Testament with a colleague who happens to be an atheist, and I was explaining to him how in the Bible, to be in Christ means that you pertain to him as your master. And he said, that means you have no identity and everyone should be able to get along. And I said, exactly. So for all of the Christians who struggle with this teaching, someone who is not battling the baggage of their own religious upbringing, when they hear the gospel explained clearly, immediately understand the point. If you are sown to the Spirit, you're not an individual in the way that you think of individuality. That's the key point here. So to be a good seed is to be a seed that fully reflects the control of that which was sown in you. Exactly, Father. When you see a field, it does matter if the individual is a wheat or a tear, but which wheat and which tear is not nearly as impressive. If we think about it from the point of view of the farmer, the individual stock of wheat is not nearly what he's interested in, in just whether he's seeing some kind of wheat or some kind of tear. So the identity of the individual is not important, but what seed is he sown from? Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. It's interesting that the disciples, who clearly don't yet understand the parable, which is a plainly spoken example, when they have the opportunity to ask Jesus in private, they go into the house, they have this opportunity, they don't ask about what's really important. They don't ask about the wheat, which is precisely God's concern. They ask about the tares. Why are they preoccupied once again with the people who don't reflect the content of the seed which was sown? That's problematic. It's problematic because they don't understand what the seed means, what the parable means. Rather than being ready to take the next step, they're still trying to figure it out in their head. You made such a good observation earlier, Father. We were talking and you noticed how it's unusual that Jesus would send away the multitudes and go into a house, because usually we see him going into the multitudes and outside of houses. But based on what Jesus said previously to the disciples about how they had to go into a house to teach, but if that house rejected the teaching, then they would leave. We have to conclude that the only reason Jesus is leaving the multitude and going into the house is because he's going to continue to teach. Even though these disciples are having trouble understanding the parable, and this is not good, it's still important that Jesus is going to cultivate this seed. You know, he talked about earlier when they asked why he taught in parables, that's when he was talking about the seed, right? So Jesus is cultivating the seed here, and he's working the ground trying to get this seed to bear fruit. The seed has not borne fruit yet just because it landed on the disciples. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. They begin by asking about the tares, and Jesus begins by speaking about the Ezekielian son of man, the Ben-Adam. 
when you see the word son of man, you should translate it always in your mind to Ben Adam. It's notable that while all of us want to enthrone and crown Jesus and make him into a Byzantine emperor, <laughs> frankly, the text itself presents him as a son of Adam. Please remember this. I always say Ezekielian because this expression is used in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is the father of Scripture and the father of the parabolic school. So there's an obvious connection in Matthew to Ezekiel through this phrase against the backdrop of the title of Caesar, son of the gods. We all know that Jesus will be put on trial because of the title son of God, which threatens Caesar, the son of the gods. But in the story, he's always presented as the son of man because he's not a king the way Caesar is a king. He's a shepherd king. I like that juxtaposition of words because they come into conflict with each other because a shepherd is nothing like a king. So Jesus is a son of Adam who is a shepherd who happens to sit on the throne because God put him there. That's his initial punch back on the disciples who are interested in finding out who the wicked, unclean people are. They're still fixated on who's unclean just deeply problematic in the New Testament where there is neither Jew nor Greek and where we are commanded to call no one unclean. It's only at the time of the judgment that the Lord in Matthew 25 will separate the sheep from the goats. We talked, of course, Richard, about how the field is the world in the sense that all of us are God's children growing in his field. And this question of good seed and bad seed, of course, reflects which individuals were sown by the biblical instruction, and which individuals were sown by something else. So I want to be really clear, it's the Bible and everything else. So in a way, if you were sown by the Bible, you cease to be an individual because you're just a plant in God's field that reflects the one teaching. If you're not sown by Scripture, then maybe you're an individual or maybe you're part of a different tribe that doesn't reflect the instruction of the Father. You have two groups of people. You have those that are the children of the good seed, and then you have the tares. The good seed are the children, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Seed and tares are in parallel. This is why we were talking about the way the metaphor works and that the good seed represents the wheat, the plant that was desired, as opposed to the tear, which is the weed that doesn't produce fruit. So the field is the world and the son of man owns the seed. He plants his field with his seed. And then we had this wicked one who came through in the night to plant these tares in order to sully the field with this other seed. I mean, if Jesus could just go around and plant seed, he would have children to himself. But because there's always the seed that's being sown next to his seed, that's when you have problems. There are a multitude of teachings out there. You hit on one in talking about individualism. The farmer's not impressed by this stalk of wheat or that weed. The farmer is saying, okay, these are going to produce fruit. Those are not producing fruit. This is the difference here. If they are producing fruit, they're good. If they're not, they're not good. I don't need both kinds, but that's it. They're kinds. 
They're not individuals. He's not paying them any attention one by one. He's just saying, is there fruit? Is there not fruit? This is the only question. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now, I think it's important that the word that's used here in Greek, reapers, theristis, is different than the word slaves, vluli. Earlier, when he was giving the parable, he talked about the slaves, and he told them not to do anything until the time. When he talks about action happening here, he uses a different word. It is reapers who come at the end, and these are the angels. And it was not lost on me as a student of Matthew that later in chapter 19, Jesus will explain that the apostles will judge the nations through the gospel, always through the gospel. It's not their judgment. It's the judgment of the Father through his instruction. And of course, in the Pauline letters, the angel is the messenger, the apostle. That's why in Galatians, he says, look, even if an angel contradicts me, meaning even if Peter or James contradict me, you can't go against what was handed down to me by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No way. Don't listen to the other apostles. They're wrong. Here, there's this allusion to the judgment in which the apostles will be set to judge. They will be the ones who reap. But as always, as always, not before the time. Remember, we spent a lot of time emphasizing this, that you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tare until everything has grown to full maturity. We cannot judge. And the older I get... <laughs> And the more time I have to see how things work in life, the more I realize you cannot judge. You don't know what someone will become. Now, in my view, people don't change. People show their true face in the harvest. They grow to full maturity and show their true face. The flaws in my character are the same today as they were when I was just a little kid. The difference is, to which seed do I submit? Because the seed can control me despite myself. The seed can make something useful even of my sins. I like to call this out, Richard, because in our attempt to fix ourselves, we may prevent God from using us for his purpose, even using our sins and our shortcomings for his objective. Remember, he is the ecodespotin. You want to talk about the tares? I'm going to begin by talking about the Son of Man. It is his purpose that is at stake. So we have only to sow his seed and allow the very same seed to control how we act and what we say so that whatever we are, we can bear some fruit in his harvest. This is the way we need to start thinking about our life in submission to the biblical teaching. All of this emphasis on fixing ourselves is a waste of time. We should focus on studying and hearing and receiving correct instruction so that we can act correctly. And if you are scriptural, the only correct instruction is the love of neighbor, not the love of self and exploring the self and figuring out the self. My father, may he rest in peace, had many wonderful sayings. <laughs> and as I get older and I think about him, 
I quote him often, one of his famous sayings was how Americans are ridiculous because at a time in life when they should be figuring out where to work and how to make money, they want to talk instead about discovering themselves. What's to discover? <laughs> Human beings have been around forever and we're all pretty much the same, plus or minus a few character flaws. What's the big deal? What are you discovering? You have a limited amount of time on earth. Do something, get a job, get married, raise your children, do something. It all comes down to what teaching are you following and what teaching is hidden there in your heart? What is the teaching that's motivating your action? There's this very subtle distinction that's made because you have the sower, but the good seed are the children of the kingdom, not of the sower, of the kingdom. And the tares are the children of the wicked. And in Greek, it just says of the wicked. And is it the wicked thing or is the wicked person, the wicked thing? Doesn't say. But it says the enemy that sowed is the devil. So you have two sowers. You have the devil that sows one teaching and you have the son of man that sows another teaching. Once you're raised up, then it shows what you are. Are you a child of the kingdom or are you a child of the wickedness that was sown by the devil? And this is very similar to what I've said about the book of Hosea, because in the book of Hosea, the land is married to Yahweh. The problem is, is she's an unfaithful wife who's been sleeping around. So when the land has a child, how do you know who the father is? Is it Yahweh or is it one of her boyfriends? The book of Hosea is laying out a kind of paternity test. Are you a child of Yahweh or are you a child of Baal? We already know you're a child of the land because that's who bore you. But who is your father? This is the plant showing what seed it came from. The decision is based on, as we said many times, whether you're bearing fruit to the kingdom or bearing fruit to wickedness. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. So the reapers, the angels, remember the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek is messenger of the king, the one whom the king sends. That's why it's such a beautiful metaphor for the apostle, the one who is sent. And it's interesting that the word apostle, the word epistle are linked because the letter is sent, just like a seed is sown. Are you the one sending the letter? Are we referring to the letter? At the end of the day, is there a difference between the one who sends the letter and the letter itself? I think that's an important thing to consider in the context of our discussion of the word seed. It's what's sown, but then does what's sown produce something that reflects its content? This is the question. But again, the important phrase here in verse 40 is at the end of the age. Exactly. The harvest time is when everything has borne all the fruit that it's going to bear. This is when the one who owns the field, the one who owns the produce, makes his decision. At this point, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So that's interesting. The first thing that happens is that they're identifying what is the fruit of the bad seed? What are the weeds that are not bearing fruit to the kingdom? And those are being plucked out and burned. The judgment is what is not producing fruit? This is probably getting old by this point because it's so redundant. What is not producing fruit? And this goes back to John the Baptist 
talking about bearing fruit to repentance. I mean, fruit is the major metaphor we've seen all throughout Matthew. I'm running out of words. Produce the fruit. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll never forget a conversation I had with our TA for dogmatic theology, Professor Barnett. There was discussion in dogmatics about whether or not there was an actual hell, because theologians don't like to think of themselves as going to hell, and the idea of hell and judgment conflicts with their platonic concept of God who is all-loving. And so you have these theories that hell is being in the presence of God, and for some people it's wonderful, and for other people it's uncomfortable. These are all theories, exactly like the word says. In Scripture, there's judgment, and I'll never forget, I asked him, well, what do you think, Professor? And he said to me, Mark, I'm a Bible guy. There's definitely a hell and a judgment. And that's what I love about verse 41 and 42. It doesn't let us off the hook. Scripture, in this sense, is merciless towards us. But I always hasten to point out that life is merciless. Life does not have any patience or tolerance for anyone. Terrible things happen to people all the time. Sometimes they deserve what happens to them, and very often they don't. Life doesn't apologize. Life doesn't rewind the clock. It doesn't look back. It doesn't care. Life just keeps moving. Now, the mercy of wisdom is that it offers you something that can help you navigate life in a way that's fruitful and productive. The thing about judgment in Scripture, everyone likes to gloss over it or erase it or move around it or ignore it or theologize it. Wouldn't you rather be criticized and judged and threatened by a book than actually face real consequences in life? Aren't consequences in literature, an opportunity for you to avoid the real consequences in life? Exactly. I mean, erasing the judgment from the text, the two words that are used about what the angels are tearing out, all things that offend, the scandalon, and that's what goes against the teaching, which is technically anomia, which means unlawful. The things that go against the law, the nomos, he's undermining those things that contradict the teaching, that's what he's getting rid of. If you're going to bear fruit, it doesn't matter what's around you. God is going to decide, the Son of Man is going to decide in the end what is bearing fruit and what isn't, and is going to remove the things that are preventing the fruit from being born. But you have to go wherever you can to produce the fruit. If there's an ideological moral enemy that needs your help so that some good can come in the world, how dare you say you are not going to help? If you can bear fruit to the kingdom, you have no excuse not to bear that fruit. You have to continue to produce. You're not allowed to stop because it's unpleasant or because there are scandals around you or lawlessness around you. You must produce in spite of those things, knowing that it is the Son of Man's place in the end to send the reapers to gather what's not bearing fruit. Then... 
The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Couple of things. The word then is critical in verse 43. Then meaning then and only then will it be revealed who is righteous and who is lawless, wicked, or unrighteous. The ones who are righteous will shine like the sun because they reflect the nomos of the kingdom of the Father. Remember, the kingdom doesn't belong to the Son of Man. He's Ben Adam. He's not the king. He's a shepherd. He's an ekonomos in God's field. So what he sows reflects the law of the kingdom. And those who are sown to this law themselves reflect the teaching of the kingdom, and thus, when their righteousness shines, it's the light of God's instruction. It's not their light. And then there's this beautiful legal expression in the Gospels, he who has ears, let him hear. It's a convicting expression, as we've said in the past, because whether or not you choose to submit to what's being said is one thing, but if you have an ear, you're hearing. I mean, try to convince me if you go to a concert and the music is loud, you can put on noise-canceling headphones. You're not going to escape the sound of the concert. You are forced to hear it. You have no control over what you hear. He just proclaimed to you the judgment. So you, O oh man, as Paul says, have no excuse. If the kingdom is the basis of everything, it's also the end of everything. It's the kingdom. Bearing fruit to repentance, as John the Baptist mentions, is so that you can heed the call of the kingdom and be a member of this kingdom, to be a member of the household of the king. As Jesus continues to focus in this small house, not among the multitudes, but only among his disciples, he is specifically aiming at his disciples this final admonition. Whoever has ears, let him hear. This is the challenge to allowing the parable to plant itself inside your mind so that you produce the correct fruit. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.